Romans chapter 11, we'll start in verse 17 and read to the end of the chapter. That's what we're going to break down tonight. It says, if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off, so I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if they do not continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, as regards the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he have, may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Tonight's study, folks, is important because many in Christendom today teach or being taught that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. They say that God is done with national Israel and all the promises for Israel will be fulfilled in and through the church. And many, unfortunately, in Christendom today across the globe are pro-Palestine and anti-Israel because of their theology and what they're being taught. Paul warns the Gentiles here in these verses, not to become proud, but to fear, but to keep a reverent heart toward God and humble toward God's plan. We're going to talk about that tonight. Now, as we saw at the end of our study last time, if we think that God is done with national Israel, then we'd have to throw away most of our Bibles. You remember last time we were together, we looked at all those verses that talked about the restoring of all things that the prophets had talked about and the restoring of Israel. And they got specific as to it's going to be rebuilt to this point and that point and We'd have to throw away most of our Bibles to say that God's done with national Israel. There's so many prophecies yet to be fulfilled. They, the Jews, were broken off as branches because of unbelief. And we, the Gentiles, have been grafted in through faith. But Paul also reminds us that we're wild olive shoots and they're natural branches. So God's grafting them back in in the end will be no big deal. 
To think that God has done with Israel and that the church is the focus and the center of attention now is dangerous since it not only contradicts scripture, but it'll also cause some to think that they're okay because they're part of the church, just like the Jews thought they were okay because they were Jews. I'm not going to take the time to go there, but if you remember Jesus taught in John chapter 15 verses 1 and following that we are to abide in the vine. He's the vine. We're the what? Or the branches. And our responsibility is to hang on to Jesus. But what's being taught is that God is done with the national Israel. They had their opportunity. They killed the Messiah. And now God is doing his work through the church. And there's a lot of teachers out there that are teaching that the church is going to bring in the kingdom. And that the church is going to turn the world around for Jesus. And have you ever heard that kind of talk? And how we're going to turn the world around for Jesus. Even though Jesus himself said many are the ones who go to destruction and narrows the way that goes to eternal life and few there be that find it. Even though Jesus in Luke chapter 18 says when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Even though the Bible clearly states that in the last days it's going to get worse and worse and worse until Jesus comes back and there's going to be this tribulation period still to come and then the millennial kingdom and then the new heaven and the new earth, what we call the eternal state. The church period, time period, the age of the Gentiles, or the, 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 the age of grace as Jesus called it in Luke chapter 4 verses 16 and following. This, this time of the Lord's favor is a period that he's using for his multiple purposes, but it's not the be all end all. And it's sad to think about how many Christians think that God has done with Israel and we're the center of it. Paul says, don't think that way. Don't think that way. Now, some of you, when you heard that section where he talked about you too may be cut off. Can you lose your salvation? No. Remember Romans eleven twenty nine. Look at Romans eleven twenty nine. God's gifts and his call are what? Irrevocable. Is your salvation a gift or did you earn it? It's a gift. Well, if you received his gift and he's given you the gift of salvation, it's irrevocable. What he's talking about here is those who think that they're okay and they're better because they're smarter. We responded in faith. The Jews didn't. We, and Paul says, don't become proud, but be humble. So what I want to do tonight at the beginning of where we're going to go is I want to show you from Scripture in a lot of places, but just a few in comparison to what's really here in the Bible, that God's plan all along has been to save all of mankind and that his people would be made up of Jew and Gentile. Now, he had for a season and for a reason a purpose to create a people, the nation of Israel, the Jews. He started from one man, who? Abraham. Abraham, to make the nation of Israel, he started from Abraham and he created a people through him. And he said, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And his plan was to have the Messiah come and be born of the Jews. That's why they weren't to intermarry and all that. He was doing something for his grand purpose and scheme. They were to be, as you're going to see from Scripture, a light to the world and a light to the nations and a light to the Gentiles. But the Jews' mentality was, we're God's chosen people. He likes us. He doesn't like y'all. And they totally missed the purpose of why God was creating them. Oh, wait a minute. What have we just been talking about? The fact that the church has that attitude now. We're God's plan. The church has replaced Israel. He's done with national Israel. It's us now. Oh, as you're going to see, we should have a heart for the people of Israel. 
We should be praying for them to come to know Jesus. We should be praying for the day in which they turn to him in faith. And we should be seeking the uniting of Gentile and Jew. Not the, he's done with you all. We're better. The same mentality to get the Jews in trouble. So let's go take a look at how God's word lays this out for us. Again, we're going to look at a lot of scriptures, but not even close to all of them. Go to Isaiah 49. Look at verses 1 through 6. Isaiah chapter 49, starting in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. My God and my God has become my strength. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob? Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for who? The nations, the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God's plan was to use the nation of Israel as a light to the Gentiles, so his glory would be to the end of the earth. By the way, if you read your Bible, especially a lot of the Old Testament prophecies, and believe them, the Bible says in the last days, many will come to the Lord because of what God is going to do in the nation of Israel and regathering them and protecting them and taking care of them in such a supernatural way that others will be coming. And many will come and see a Jew and grab them and say, show us the Lord, take us to the Lord. He's going to glorify himself through what he does with the nation of Israel in the days to come. Go to Isaiah chapter 60. God's plan again, like we saw, was that the Jews would be a light. To the nations. Isaiah 60, look at verses 1 through 3. This is a prophecy about the coming kingdom and the glory of Israel in the future. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising, a prophecy about the nation of Israel and how all the nations are going to come and worship the Lord because of what he's doing and going to do in the nation of Israel. Go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, look at verse 12. Listen to what Jesus says because this is going to lay a foundation for where we're going to go next in John chapter 1. John chapter 8, listen to verse 12. Jesus says, he speaks to them and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So who is the light of the world? Jesus. All right. Now go back to John chapter one. And let's start in verse one. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Now in him was life and that life was the light of men. Now the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. 
Now, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. We know him as John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Oh, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Who are his own people? The Jews, exactly. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, and the, nor of the will of man, but of God. Go to Acts chapter 13. Listen to verses 42 through 48. Acts 13, starting in verse 42. Peter's preaching here. It says, as they went out, sorry, not Peter. This is at Paul at this point. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. Stop real quick. Who, who, who's following him now? Jews and who? Devout converts to Judaism, which means they were Gentiles who were starting to believe in the, the God of the Jews. All right. So they followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Now, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now here we have Paul, beginning of his ministry, goes into the synagogues and he's explaining from the scriptures that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the promised Christ. And many of the Jews started to respond and saying, well, you know what, we, we, we think there's something to what you're saying. We want to hear some more. And some of the converts to Judaism who were Gentiles who had become Jews, they, they wanted to believe this. And they're starting to be a little curious. And Paul says something very interesting to them. He says, continue in the grace of God. In other words, God's begun to draw you. You now have a responsibility to respond appropriately. Remember how we've already been seeing throughout our study of Romans, the seed is planted. Everybody hears the word. Even the seed that fell on the path, the scripture says, it was planted in their hearts. That's why James chapter 1 says, receive the implanted word, which is able to, to save your souls. Everyone hears, Paul says, the fact that you're even curious, the fact that you're wanting to know some more, means God's begun to draw you. You better continue in his grace. Then by the time the next Sabbath comes, almost the whole city shows up to hear. Word has been spreading. And as they were sharing it, the Jews became a little upset, didn't they? I mean, they were preaching, wasn't Judaism. It was the faith in this guy that was killed and supposedly rose from the dead. He's the Messiah. And all that they thought was about them was being messed up. Stop for a second. Put a finger here in the book of Acts. We're going to come back to Acts in just a second. Go with me to, John, sorry, to Luke chapter 4. 
We'll start in verse 16. And he, this is Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue. And on a Sabbath day, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me or anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind. And to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is that not this Joseph's son? And, and he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and the great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in the Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff and kill him. But passing through their midst, he went away. Isn't that interesting? He claims, I'm the Messiah. This prophecy about the one who's going to come, the servant of the Lord, I'm he. This has been fulfilled in your hearing. They're like, yeah, we're having a little trouble with that. Aren't you just a regular guy? I mean, didn't you grow up in this town? Didn't we watch you ride your bike? You know, that kind of stuff. And he goes, you're probably going to say to me, the stuff we heard that you were doing in Capernaum, do it here. He goes, let me say something to you. When God shut the rain down in Israel for three and a half years, there were lots of widows in Israel that could have had help. But God sent the prophet to one who was a Gentile. And there were lots of lepers at the time of Elisha. And God didn't have him heal a Jew. He had him heal a Gentile. In other words, what was he saying? I'm not here just for the Jews. But God wants even the Gentiles to be saved. What was the reaction of the Jews to that? We don't want that. And they wanted to kill him. I've always pictured Jesus walking through that crowd that was about to try to push him off the hill. I can always imagine him thinking to himself, I'm going to die on a hill someday, but not this hill and not today. Now, Paul, later on, after Jesus has died for the sins of the world, risen from the dead, ascended back to the Father, is now preaching. And Paul is confronted by the Jews who are upset. And Paul says, tell you what, since you have rejected this, we're going to go to the Gentiles now. We're going to go to the Gentiles now. Go to Acts 26. Look at verses 1 through 23. So Agrippa, Paul, by the way, is under uh, Roman arrest and he's before this king Agrippa. He says, so Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. 
He says, I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused oh, by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on, my way, on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes. God was sending Paul to open the eyes of who? The Gentiles. So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent. And turned to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ, the Messiah, must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to who? To the Gentiles. There it is again. It's been for everyone at all times. Now, God in his purposes and his plan chose a people and created a people called the Jews. And he has been using them for a season to be his light. But there came a point where as a whole, they rejected him. But isn't it interesting that the Jew of the Jews is the one that God uses to preach to the Gentiles? That's the mercy of God. That he even it would take... Remember, Paul is being attacked by these Jews that are against his message of preaching Jesus. Paul was one of those kind of people. He was one of the worst. Yet Jesus in his mercy met Paul on that road, blinded him, knocked him off of his horse, told him, you're going to believe this. And I'm going to use you to go preach to the Gentiles. I'm going to put you before kings and rulers and the authorities. And at that time, who was, the, the, who was in charge of the whole world? 
Romans. And Paul is used not only to preach to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles and also the bigwigs when it comes to the people of the Gentiles. Go to Luke 2. There's something that happened in the Christmas story that many of us might have missed. Go back to Luke chapter 2. We're going to go to verse 25 through 32. Luke 2, starting in verse 25. This is when Jesus is being presented in the temple as a baby. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Stop. What's the consolation of Israel? Who's the consolation of Israel? The Messiah. They don't know it's Jesus at this point, but they're waiting for the promised one. All through the Old Testament was this promised one. The one who's going to be the seed of the woman who's going to defeat Satan. The one who's going to be from the stump of Jesse, who's going to be a descendant of David. He's going to have the spirit of God upon him, the suffering servant, all these ones. And there were Jews who believed the prophecies and they were waiting for that one who was to come. That's why when John the Baptist comes on the scene in the power of the spirit of God and the power of Elijah, everybody's saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? Are you the Christ? And he said, I'm not. I'm the one that's preparing the way for him. So he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Look at verse 26. Not only has the Holy Spirit upon him at the end of verse 25, and it had been revealed to him, Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and he blessed God. And he said, Lord, take me home. (laughs) Now you're letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to who? To the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. Do you see it again? It's to the Jew and the Gentile. God did choose the people, the Jews. And he has a purpose for them and he's not done. As you're going to see as we get back to Romans 11, they're on hold for a season as he's working through the church. But it is wrong for the church to think that God's done with Israel because it's not just about us. We're what he's using now for a season. He's using us, as we've already seen in our study, to make Israel jealous. But when he's done with us, he'll finish all the promises and the prophecies for the nation of Israel. To be pro-Palestine and anti-Israel is to be unbiblical, folks. We need to have a heart for the people of Israel. I've heard people say, well, the Jews killed Jesus. No, they didn't. You did. I did. He was cruised for my iniquities. I mean, crushed for my iniquities. He was bruised for my sins. He was put to death for what you've done. We all, like sheep, have turned away. We've all put him to death. He wasn't just killed by the Jews. He was killed by all of us. He was put to death for our sins. And to think that we're better, and God's done with them, and it's now about the church, and to be anti-Semitic, Paul says, be careful. Be careful. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verses 11 through chapter 3, verse 6. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That's the Jews 
which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household to God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. As we've already seen, the mystery that had been revealed to Paul and the holy apostles was not that the Gentiles would be saved. That's been there all along. We've seen it over and over. Enoch, by the way, who walked with God and God took him, he was a Gentile. There was no nation of Israel at that time. He wasn't a Jew. That's why I think Enoch won't be one of the witnesses to the nation of Israel in Jerusalem during the tribulation period. I don't believe Enoch will be one of the two witnesses because he's not a Jew. You want to know who I think the two witnesses are? You've got to come to the Revelation study that's coming up in January. But we'll save that for another time or you're going to get the book. But listen closely. What has been revealed, though, is that not only was God going to save the Gentiles, but they'd be co-heirs, equal in the eyes of God with the nation of Israel. Oh, as you're going to see in just a second, as foolish as it would be for the Jews to think they're better than us, it'd be foolish for us to think that we're better than them. Actually, we've already received what the nation of Israel is going to receive. Now, individual Jews who get saved are part of the church, and they'll be raptured when we get raptured. But the nation as a whole as we're going to see at the end of our study of Revelation tonight in chapter 11, Revelation chapter 11, the nation of a whole has been put on hold. They've received a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel that is left and survives the tribulation period will be saved. The prophecies even say back in the book of Jeremiah that at that point in the nation of Israel, they won't need preachers or anybody saying know the Lord because they'll all know him from the least to the greatest. Because at that point, at the end of the tribulation period, every Jew that survives the tribulation period will be saved. And that's why Jesus in Matthew 24, talking about the tribulation period, said, and he who stands firm to the end will be saved. They're all going to know him. 
But we have been given. One day he's going to erase all their sin. He's going to put his spirit within them to move his, follow his decrees. And we've been given that now. And he's using people like us who didn't grow up under Judaism. We didn't, we didn't follow the law of Moses. We didn't have all the rules and regulations. And we're getting to go to heaven and we didn't even try. That's the whole point. That's what God wants to show the Jews. you got to stop trying to get into heaven and receive it by faith. It's been that way all along. Go to Revelation 21. Look at verses 9 through 14. Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 14. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of who? Of Israel. Their names are on the gates. They were inscribed and on the east three gates and on the north three gates and on the south three gates and on the west three gates and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Do you see it? When we get to the eternal state after the millennial kingdom and Jesus makes a whole new heaven and new earth and the new city Jerusalem comes down on this new planet that's going to be made, the eternal state where we won't even remember what's gone on before and we'll worship the Lord and there'll be no more sin, no more any of the tears and all that and the wonderful eternal state. The city Jerusalem, the bride, the wife of the lamb is going to be made up of just the church? No. Israel and the church. This has been God's plan all along. Do you see how wrong it is to think that he's done with them when all through scripture he's been saying, no, no, no. I've been trying to make one new man all along. By the way, in the early part of the church, some of you may know this, some of you might not have ever realized this, but Satan even tried to have that hostility break the church into two groups. There was going to be like a Jewish branch of the church and a Gentile branch. And God had to clearly show, no, the Gentiles are equal with the Jews. And then the Jews would say, well, you've got to tell those Gentiles that they've got to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. And there are even people today in Christendom, and I'll put Christendom in quotes, who there are movements in our area and around that trying to take Christians back under the law of Moses. And how you have to follow the law of Moses and follow the dietary restrictions. And there are them, some denominations that say we have to worship on the Sabbath. And it goes back under rules and regulations again. And all along, the gospel has been salvation is by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. And oh, by the way, it's going to be made up of Jew and Gentile. No one's special. It's available to everyone. Interestingly enough, we don't have time to chase this too long, but if you were to go back and look at John chapter 12, verse 20, you remember Jesus said himself, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. A Gentile woman called out to him and said, help me, my daughter has a demon, and Jesus ignores her. And the disciples come to him and they say, look, she's driving us crazy, could you do something? And he said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. But then she responds in such a faith way, he recognizes, of course he's God, he knew this all along, he recognizes that she has faith. And he deals with her and heals her daughter. 
But then in John chapter 12, verse 20, something very interesting happens. A group of Greeks, a group of Gentiles come in a group to Philip and they say, we want to see Jesus. And he goes and gets Andrew and the two of them go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, there's a group of Greeks that want to see you. And you can go double check me. Jesus' response is very interesting when he hears that a group of Greeks want to see him. He says, it's time to die. He says, time to die. Why was that the signal? Well, he knew that for a period he was going to be drawing the nation of Israel. But because of the rejection of the Messiah and the rejection of them, he was going to be setting Israel aside. Not totally. Jews can still be saved today. We got one right in our room, don't we? Yep. But as a whole, the Spirit of God was going to stop drawing the Jews as much and start moving his drawing to the Gentiles. And Jesus recognizes that all of a sudden there's a group of Greeks that all want to see him. It's not a Gentile here and a Gentile there. It's a group of them. And he goes, my father's moving his drawing to the Gentiles. It's time to go to the cross. By the way, you know what I'm looking for? I'm watching to see a group of Jews starting to come to faith. I've been praying for that for a while because there's going to come a point when all of a sudden a group of Jews are starting to, are going to come to faith. And you know what that means? That means he's moving his drawing back to the nation of Israel. And it's time for us to be ready to go. By the way, what should we be praying then for as Christians? That the Jews would believe in Jesus. But how can you do that if your church is teaching you to be pro-Palestine and anti-Israel? Do you see how sad this is, folks? And you ready for this? The predominant numbers of those in Christendom are teaching the opposite of what you're hearing tonight. When you look at the numbers of denominations that are amillennial, anti-Israel, it would surprise you. Let's go back to Romans chapter 11. Look at verses 25 through 32. Lest you be wise in your own sight... I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, as regards the gospel, they, the Jews, Israel, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that are still yet to be fulfilled. And if he never fulfills them in the land, like he promised them, God broke his promise. Well, he, he can't and he won't. For just as you were at one time disobedient, to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And then Paul, after dealing with all of this big, deep theology in chapters 9, 10, and 11, I picture him having to sit down for a second. And he comes to a conclusion that I love to quote, but I'm going to break it down for you. He sits down and he marvels at God's plan. Now, I'm going to stop real quick and say that again. Whose plan? God's plan. If we're faithful to the scriptures, 
God has been doing things how he wants all along. And there have been different ways that he's worked at different time periods all throughout history. Oh, he worked a different way while things were in the garden. But then between the garden and when the law came, he worked in a different way. But then then he brought the law, and there was the time period of the law and the age of the law. And that was another dispensation, if you will. Some of the people say, oh, you're one of those dispensationalists. I can prove that you all are. How many of you, show of hands, believe in an Old Testament and a New Testament? You're a dispensationalist. How many of you believe in Hebrews chapter 1? where it says, in the past, God spoke through his prophets. Now he's speaking through his son, Jesus. You believe that? Well, guess what? You're a dispensationalist. He went one way, worked one way. Now he's working another way. There's different levels of dispensation, but the Bible says that God has worked in different time periods according to his plan and for his purposes the way he wants. Let me tell you what I mean by this. I grew up in, I didn't grow up with a denomination. Some of you are thinking, well, you're teaching, you've been raised Baptist or whatever. No, listen closely. I, when I got saved in 1973, I got saved in a little church called Milton Community Church in Milton, New Hampshire. You probably don't even know where this town is. And those people that live there have a hard time finding it. It's small, all right? But let me just say this to you. The town was so small, all the Protestants met together in one building, and the Roman Catholics met in another building because there wasn't enough people to have a Methodist church and a Baptist church and a Protestant church. I'm sorry, a Presbyterian church and an Episcopal church. So all the Protestants were together in the community church. And I wasn't raised under a certain type of teaching, it was just a mixture. I mean, we had a mixture of all different. I mean, we had a christening bowl up front. Yet, if you wanted to get baptized in the lake, you could do that and all this stuff, different thing. And for years, I was taught that when you die, you go to heaven and that's it. But the more I started to grow in my knowledge of the Lord and the study of the word, the more I started to realize, wait a minute, the Bible says that we're going to come back. After the tribulation period, while we're up in heaven with Jesus, the church is up in heaven when that tribulation period is over, Jesus is going to come back to the earth and we're going to come with him and rule and reign for a thousand years during a millennial kingdom. And I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't like that idea. I didn't want to come back. My thinking was, let's go and stay. Why are we coming back? Man, I was sharing this last night. A man came up to me afterwards. He said, I know what you're trying to say, but he goes, let me put it to you this way. He said, you'll be glad to come back. Because you'll want to be wherever Jesus is. And that's where he's going to be. And you'll want to be back on the earth. And I, I, I'm there now. But when I first started realizing it, my first fleshly reaction was, I don't like the fact that we have to come back. I mean, yes, Satan's going to be bound in the pit for a thousand years. But you know the Bible says there's still going to be sin. Jesus is going to be ruling with a rod of iron. There's going to be a lot more righteousness than there is now, but he's still going to rule with a rod of iron. And by the end of the thousand years, there's going to be more people that you encounter are all going to come against Jesus to fight against him when Satan's released. But guess what? This is his plan. This church aid thing that we get to enjoy the benefits of, where we're just given salvation and we don't even work for it, this is all a part of his plan that's been all along. He's worked one way in the garden, one way between the garden and Moses. And then from Moses on, there was that time period. And now we're in the time period of the year of the Lord's favor, the age of grace. But that's going to come to an end. And then he's going to finish what he said with Israel in the tribulation period. And then the millennial kingdom. And then finally, the new heaven and the new earth. And listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. I'm going to read to you verses 33 through 36. And then I'm going to break it down for you. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. In other words, you will never totally understand or figure it all out. I'm just going to say that to you now. And the sooner you let that truth sink in, the happier you'll be. There are things that he reveals to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed to us and to our children. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2 says it's to the glory of God to conceal certain certain things and to conceal a matter. But it's the glory of kings to search things out. There are things that we will know, but not everything we'll know. Because, listen, the moment you know everything, you're God. And you're never getting there. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the riches of God. Listen how the NIV puts it. How is, uh, uh, he goes, oh, the depth of the wisdom and the riches and knowledge of God. How his paths are beyond tracing out. You're never going to fully understand what he's doing, and you have to be okay with that. Look what he says next in verse 34. Uh, he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? By the way, does anybody know God's thoughts all the time? No, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. My ways aren't your ways. My ways are way higher than yours. Don't ever think you've got me all figured out. How many times have heard people say, oh, I know what God's doing. You've just shown your ignorance. You might know a portion of what God's doing, but he's doing so many different things on so many different levels. Don't assume you understand everything he's doing. Because like I just showed you earlier before our study tonight in Job 37, 11 through 13, he makes hurricanes, sometimes for correction, sometimes for the land, and sometimes for his love. And most of the time, all three at the same time. You ever wondered why it goes where they go? It isn't because we were praying harder on the East Coast than the West Coast. They even thought they knew exactly where it was going to be. And then all of a sudden, boom. And by the way, as we were watching the track... I kept telling my wife, it's heading for our house, and you could draw a straight line. And it, once it got straight and headed across Florida, it didn't move. Have you ever noticed it? You'll go back and look at the track of Ian. It's like a, a, a ruler. And then just before it gets to Brevard, a little left turn. Why? We don't fully know. But it's for many reasons, and they're good. So how many of us have known God's mind? Not all of us. None of us. Now, we also, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, have the mind of Christ, and there are things he will reveal to us, but don't think you'll ever get to the point where you understand it all. But I want to go to that second part of verse 34. I want to show hands. Who's been his counselor? No, no, no. Who's been God's counselor? We all have applied for the position, have we not? Let's be honest. We all have. I prayed, Lord, if you'll just let me marry so-and-so, everything. I remember those prayers. And I look back and say, oh, God, thank you for not answering that prayer. But at the time, I was sure I knew what was best. And I was advising him. And we've all done it. And you're going to do it tomorrow. But Paul says he doesn't need our advice. He doesn't mind us sharing with him what we think or how we feel. But then we lay it at his feet and say, You're be you know what's best and we trust you. But he wants us to share. Here's what I'd like. There's nothing wrong with that prayer. Jesus said, if there's a way you can take this cup from me, I'm for it. There's nothing wrong with praying like that. But then you, like Jesus, say, but not my will, but yours. We've all applied for the position of being his counsel. Look at verse 35. Who's given a gift to God that he might be repaid? In other words, um, what does God owe you? 
We're going to get into that next week when we start breaking down. We're going to spend most of our time, if not the whole time, in Romans 12, just verses 1 and 2. Where we're going to look at the, by the mercies of God to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And we're going to really, I'm going to show you that you really will never be able to offer yourself as a living sacrifice until you really fully understand the mercies of God. And we're going to spend a lot of time on the mercies of God next week. Because I really don't believe, and I'm finding that in my life and in the scriptures, that until we fully understand the mercies of God or more fully understand the mercies of God, we'll never fully offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. We're going to see how they come together, but we'll deal with that next week. Acts 17, 25 says he's not served by human hands if he needed anything. He, he doesn't owe you anything. Yeah, but I've, oh, be careful. Your salvation was a gift. Everything that he's promised you is yours, and that he'll, he does owe you what he's promised. But beyond what he's promised, he doesn't owe you anything. And then listen to the last verse. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. He ends up by saying this is all about him. But in his mercy and grace, which we're going to get to next week, he's chosen to let us be a part and beneficiaries of his plan. You all do realize the Bible says that there's rewards and glory to come that is beyond what we could even imagine right now. I honestly think that if we honestly could right now in our human form get a glimpse of what it is that is to come, I think we'd die. Personally, I think we would die. What, what happened when people on earth even just got a glimpse of Jesus in his glory? They fell at his feet as though dead. Paul says, I got a glimpse of it, and I don't know if it's in my body or out of my body, but I got a glimpse of it, and I'm not allowed to talk about what I saw. Let me just tell you, what's to come isn't even worth comparing to what we're going through right now. It's mind-blowing. You can't even imagine what is still to come. But does he owe us that? Well, in the sense that he's promised it, but did we... Does he owe it to us because we've earned it? No, it's by his grace. This is all about him. Go back with me to Ephesians chapter 1. L let me show you something here. I want you to see the mixture of the promises of all the lavish blessings that we have in Christ now and to come. But also notice how throughout the whole promise of all these blessings, it's about Jesus. In Ephesians 1, look at verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, listen closely, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. What was predestined was that we'd be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. That was what was planned ahead of time, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel 
gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Did you catch how all through that whole section he kept saying, you are amazingly blessed. You've been given all this in him, in him, in him. The center of it's him, the center of it's him. The moment you start thinking it's about you, you get off the track. You get derailed. Is it, are we blessed? Yes. Are we highly favored? Without question. But it's because of him. And it's for him. And anytime the preaching and the teaching starts moving the blessed and highly favored into you can just name it and claim it, or you can just say, I believe, and you'll be healed, and you move into that realm where you all of a sudden become the one who's in charge, you forgot that this is by him, through him, and for him, we're just humble servants. And he's blessed us in his mercy. We're getting into where we're going next week, but he's blessed us in his mercy to be a part of this. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And the, he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's, that's now, even though we don't understand it. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one might, may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we can make a little commercial to so where we're going in chapter 12. God's going to be showing us through Paul's letter that because of his mercy, when you really understand this is really all about him, yet he's allowed us to be a part of it. He's using us for his purposes. And one day he's going to reward us with the glories that we can't even imagine. We're actually going to rule over the angels. It's just going to be mind-blowing what he's got in store for us. Yet at the same time, here on this earth, our attitude should be, I'm your humble servant. Do to me as you will and do with me as you will. Isn't that what Mary prayed? By the way, was being pregnant out of wedlock and being accused of being an, uh, a harlot, unfaithful, something she would have chosen? No, but for the sake of God and his plan and thank God for his plan. She submitted herself to his plan for her life. And oh, by the way, she lost a lot. And then ended up having to go hide for a while with her cousin. And then there's a chance that when they went to Bethlehem, their hometown area where a lot of family probably were, one of the reasons why she gave birth not in a house or an inn wasn't just because the inns were full. There's a strong chance that family members didn't want to be associated with this one who had a baby out of wedlock. Yet what was her attitude? I'm your servant. Let it be to me as you have said. We're going to move into, and then chapter 12 goes on into, in verses 3 through 8, that each of us, remember, he's prepared good works for us beforehand that we should walk in them. We need to be finding out what is the role that God has for each of us. 
And I'm going to tell you right now, can't wait to get there. You won't really find the joy that you have in your walk with Jesus until you find out the role he has for you. And once you find the role he has for you and you stop letting everybody else tell you what you ought to be doing and you learn to walk with Jesus and be used to him and the gift that he's made you, whether you're an eye or a foot or a hand or an ear or whatever part of the body you are, you will start to really experience joy. We did not name this ministry just to preach your ministries for no reason. And trust me, there's a lot of people that expect Jim Johnson to do a lot of other things. But I'm finding joy when I find what it is he's gifted and called me to do. And I want that for you, but that's when we get to chapter 12. So don't think this is about us. But be grateful that he's included you in his plan. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his ways, his paths beyond tracing out. Who's ever known the mind of God or who's ever been his counselor? Who's ever given a gift that he should be repaid? For from him and to him and through him are all things and for him are all things. To him be the glory. Is God done with the nation of Israel? By the way, how you answer this will determine if you get to go home. Is God done with the nation of Israel? No. And when our time period is over, he'll fulfill all those promises. Pray for your brothers and sisters in the nation of Israel and beg God that it be now that they start turning to him. I love you. We'll see you in, in next week. Thanks.